0: It's wonderful to worship with you all today here in the sanctuary and also wonderful to worship with all of you worshiping with us online. We are in a sermon series called The Healing Savior. We're looking at different stories of Christ healing folks in the Gospels of the New Testament. And today we're going to look at a wonderful story in Luke chapter 17. I will read verses 11 through 19 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of my sermon is, Salvation in Perfect Tense. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Some years ago, a member of the church I was pastoring had a brain tumor at the same time her mother was dealing with a degenerative disease. One of her main concerns was that her mother had become so downhearted and so she asked if there might be a word of biblical encouragement that I could offer. I immediately thought, of the way Luke describes certain individuals in his gospel. In Luke 5.18, he does not describe the paraplegic man as a paralytic, but as a man who was paralyzed. In Luke 8.17, he does not describe the demon-possessed man as a demoniac, but as a man who had demons. And in Luke 17, 12 here, he does not describe the ten men as lepers, but as men who had leprosy. The distinction is important, as Bible scholar Alan Culpepper notes. For Luke to call them persons with leprosy rather than lepers is to indicate that they are not defined By their disease, their diagnosis does not diminish their personhood. Yes, they have a condition, but no, they cannot be reduced to it. I told the woman this and I said to her, I don't know if you will find this helpful or not, but Luke might describe your mother as a woman with a disease. Rather than as a diseased woman, because her disease does not define her. She is defined by Christ's love for her. I further suggested to the woman that her own condition did not define her, but Christ did. She latched on to this and asked me to write down these scripture references. And she took them home and she told her mom. From that point on, she would not allow her diagnosis to define her. Just as Luke would not allow leprosy to define these ten men. The term... Leprosy referred to a number of skin conditions in the ancient world, all of which rendered a person unclean according to Old Testament law. Many people in the ancient world viewed leprosy as divine punishment for sin. So persons with leprosy were often seen as spiritually deficient and scorned by God. But these men must have sensed that Jesus came to bring divine mercy. For when He came near, they approached Him, and keeping their distance, they called out to Him, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The term mercy means to demonstrate pity, sympathy, and genuine care for someone. It means to show compassion and love by way of Action. It means to help someone because your heart goes out to them. The mercy of God is essential for human salvation. And these men begged mercy from the right person. Christ did not avert His eyes from these untouchables, nor did He ignore these men on the margins of society. He saw them, says verse 14. Christ sees people who are down and out. Christ sees people who face an uphill climb every morning. Christ sees people who have the odds stacked against them, people who have been excluded, marginalized, and alienated. Christ trains his eyes on the invisible persons of society. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. This was the standard protocol for persons with leprosy to be reintegrated into society. They were to consult a priest and have the priest declare them clean. But when Jesus told these men to consult a priest, they still had leprosy and they were still unclean and defiled He was inviting them to trust that they would be cleansed en route to see the priest. And they did trust him. All ten of them obeyed his word and made their way to the priests. And on the way, in one big swoop, all ten of them were cleansed and thus no longer defiled. It would seem to be a climactic moment, but the story is far from over. Although all ten were cleansed by the word of Christ, one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back. Did the others not see that they were healed? Did they notice their healing and dismiss it as coincidence? Or did they notice they were healed, yet not see the full significance of their healer? To see who Jesus is and what God does through him is crucial. Luke often depicts spiritual realization in visual terms. In Luke 2, Simeon the priest sees the salvation of God and the baby Jesus. In Luke 9, Jesus talks about seeing the kingdom of God. In Luke 10, Jesus tells his disciples they are blessed to see him. In Luke 19, little Zacchaeus climbed the sycamore tree to try to see who Jesus was. And in Luke 24, two disciples walked the road to Emmaus with the risen Jesus, and they don't know it's him until they sit down at the table with him and break bread and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In our story, what distinguishes the one man from the other nine is that he saw the magnitude not only of his healing but of his healer. A high percentage of people this story suggests, benefit from the mercy of God, but never see it for what it truly is. A summer shower soaking the earth so it can bring forth fruit. A rainbow bending vividly across the sky. A smile stretching out upon a child's a portion of food on the table, a roof over our head at night, friends and family to journey through life with. These are all marvelous gifts from our merciful God if only we see them for what they are. Christ came to show the love of God, to teach the truth of God And to die on the cross and rise from the grave for our salvation if only we see Christ for who he is. He also worked miracles to show the compassion and the power of God. Some struggle to see Christ's healings as real miracles because they're so contrary to everyday experience. This is understandable, but if there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, who molded the mountains, who shaped the seas, who fashioned human beings from the dust of the ground, as Scripture says, then surely God's power exceeds our feeble imaginations. Surely God's potential exceeds our naturalistic assumptions. It's a choice to see the world as God's creation. It's a choice to see miracles as real possibilities. It's a choice to see Jesus as the love of God made manifest. It's a choice to see His death as our salvation and His resurrection as our victory over the grave. It's a choice to see Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and Savior. The choice to see things this way is what we Christians call faith. One man out of ten saw what had happened, saw how God had visited him in the person of Jesus, and saw how God had healed him through Jesus. So he turned back to praise God. He's the only one of the ten who gets it. He's the only one of the ten who sees who Christ really is. Is. He's the only one of the ten who is exemplary in this story from start to finish. And get this, he was a Samaritan. Luke drops this news on us late in the story. Suddenly, we learn here that the paragon of faith is not only a man who had had leprosy, but also. A Samaritan. This makes him a double outsider. First, his leprosy would have rendered him unclean, defiled, and seen by many as scorned by God. Second, his Samaritan ethnicity would have rendered him an outsider to the Jewish people. Samaritans, who were half Jewish and half Gentile, were often viewed contemptuously by ancient Jews. Samaritans and Jews did not normally share things in common, and Samaritans believed the proper place to sacrifice and worship was Mount Gerizim, while Jews believed the proper place to sacrifice and worship was Jerusalem. The ethnic and religious tensions between these two groups were substantial. Yet Jesus, a Jew, heals the Samaritan man, just as he healed the other nine who were presumably Jewish. This shows that no matter how far outside of God's favor one is assumed to be, Jesus is eager to include, Jesus is eager to welcome, Jesus is eager to bless that very one. Jesus calls him a foreigner in verse 18, where none found to return and give glory to God except this foreigner? It's the same word that appeared on signs in the Jewish temple indicating that no foreigner could enter the inner courts. So this man who was supposed to be distant from God on account of his ethnicity and distant from God on account of his Leprosy becomes the closest person to Jesus in the story. He draws nearer than anyone else, falling at Jesus' feet. Closeness to Christ has nothing to do with demographic status, medical condition, or ethnic affiliation. It has everything to do with faith. The faith of this man is clear. And that he saw what had happened, spontaneously turned back, and praised God at the feet of Jesus. Now, theoretically, he could have praised God as he continued on his way toward uh, the priest. But he returned to glorify God in the presence of Jesus because the proper place to worship is not Mount Gerizim nor Jerusalem, but at the feet of Christ. He thanked Jesus too, which is noteworthy because this is the only time in the whole New Testament when thanks are rendered to Jesus rather than God. In summary, the returning Samaritan glorifies God, worships at Jesus' feet, and offers prayerful thanks to Christ. And Jesus says to him, your faith has saved you. The NRSV obscures this a bit by translating it, your faith has made you well. But the Greek term there is sozo, which means saved. So ten were cured, but only one was saved. Ten were able to reintegrate into society, but only one entered the kingdom of God. Ten were aided in Body, but only one was transformed in spirit. Ten received a miracle, but only one returned to say thank you. Ten encountered the saving power of the Messiah, but only one returned to praise God. Ten met the Savior at a distance, but only one drew near, worshiped at his feet, and heard those wonderful words Your faith has saved you. Ten had initial trust. But only one had saving faith. Notice that Jesus preaches salvation by faith, just as Paul so famously does. In Luke 7, he said to the woman who anointed his feet, your faith has saved you. In Luke 8, he said to the woman with the issue of blood, your faith has saved you. In Luke Eighteen, he said to the blind man who had cried out for mercy, your faith has saved you. And here in Luke 17, he says to the Samaritan man who formerly had leprosy, your faith has saved you. He's not only saved from a skin condition, not only saved from social and religious alienation, but also saved from sin and death because he has a personal connection to Christ through faith. The salvation Christ brings is announced in the perfect tense. Your faith has saved you. The perfect tense in Greek signals an action that has been completed yet has a continuing effect. Salvation is complete and it continues. Salvation is not strictly a future event because it's already been completed. But salvation is not strictly a past event because it is ongoing. Once we encounter Christ, once we receive his mercy, once we see by faith what he has done for us and praise God in his presence, pouring out thanks, salvation is accomplished. But it's not yet over. It reminds me of graduate school because I had to write an essay on this story for a class I took on the Gospel of Luke, taught by the renowned Vanderbilt professor. Amy Jill Levine, I liked her teaching so much, she is awesome by the way, but I decided to ask her to be on my dissertation committee. This was a bit risky because while she is outstanding, she is also very demanding. Well, she agreed to be on the committee and then I worked for a few years on writing my dissertation mainly with my advisor and my second reader. And as I was preparing for my dissertation defense, I wasn't sure how much Professor Levine, who we called AJ, would challenge me. I wasn't sure how much she would ask questions or what objections or concerns she might raise at the defense. When I was talking with my advisor, about making preparations, he told me to be ready for any question and any challenge from anybody because anything can happen at a dissertation defense. And he further advised me to swing for the fences on every answer, to try to defend it with everything I could muster and not back down to anybody. (laughs) And so when I showed up that day, for this dissertation defense, it was an hour and a half to determine whether seven years of work was going to pass or not. And from the first question that was raised, I was ready to fiercely defend every point as much as I possibly could. I swung for the fence on every response to every person. I mean, I was giving it everything I had on every comment. And at one point, Professor Levine, A.J. paused and said, Noel, we're trying to help you with your work here. You are going to pass. She said this as she nods at the other professors around the table. You are going to pass. So just relax. And let's talk about your work. Well, at that point, the whole conversation shifted. I let down my guard and began to listen and learn to these from these brilliant scholars around the table. I didn't proceed with anxiety, I rather proceeded with assurance because I had received this powerful word of assurance that I was going to pass. The defense wasn't over at that point. I still had plenty of work to do, but the final result was a foregone Conclusion, I see Jesus' word of assurance similarly. He comes to every Christian in the midst of our arduous existence and says, your faith has saved you. He says to us, your confidence in me, your belief in me, your trust in me has saved you. You can let down your guard and proceed with assurance you've still got work to do, but the final result is a foregone conclusion. Christ has given us forgiveness of our sins, peace with God, victory over the grave, and the promise of everlasting life. Our salvation is in perfect tense. Our salvation is complete though it's not yet over. Our salvation is accomplished, though it's not yet concluded. We are already assured that we are going to pass, not due to our merit, but due to Christ's mercy. We've still got work to do in the meantime. We've still got plenty to learn. We've still got praise to render and thanksgiving to pour out and obedience to demonstrate and mission work to carry out which is why Christ says to the man get up and go on your way worship yes and then get up and go on your way and as we go in faith we go knowing that our faith has saved us that our faith continues to save us for we have perfect salvation in the perfect tense due to the perfect mercy of Christ our Savior. Amen.